finally I said, you know what, I have two books that are ready to go. One Montpelier Tomorrow's my novel, and then this, Bonds of Love and Blood. I'm going to find a publisher. And so within six months, that was a New Year's resolution. So I think there is something about putting your mind on a, a goal and saying, I'm going to make this happen no matter what. So within six months, I had three publishing offers. Welcome to the Lifelines Podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Here we are again for the final day of BookCon. We are with author Mary Lee McDonald. She is the author of Bonds and Love and Blood, a collection of short stories. And we're going to talk to her about this collection and about her work. Um, and we're just going to let you get to know her. So hello there, Mary Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's pretty exciting to be here at BookCon, and I just want to start out by saying I saw a huge line where you were signing your book, and I also saw a smaller book that said postcards, and uh, can you say a little about that? Because that's the first time I've ever seen anything like that. So Postcards is a book of illustrations that I made to go along with the short stories that are in Bonds of Love and Blood. And I made it because my grandson told me that he couldn't visualize stories just from the words. And he wanted a picture, he wasn't sure he was getting it right. So I made a little illustrated book of excerpts from my book from this Bonds of Love and Blood and pictures that I got from Creative Commons. And I just put this together because I thought there have to be other people like him in the world. And I wanted them to see the pictures I saw in my head. That's a really great story. I like that a lot. And giving them out separately in a separate little booklet was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And it was also kind of a great promotional idea because those were being handed out and then people were coming back and saying, well, I want to buy that book. All right, well, tell us about the book. Tell us a little bit about it. So this book uh, originated from a collection of short stories that I'd been putting together for some time. All of these stories had won national literary prizes. Not that that means anything to the average reader, but they've won the Barry Hanna Prize, the William Faulkner Prize, the Ron Rash Award and various other literary prizes. And all the stories had a common theme. And the common theme is that we are indebted and bonded to our families, but we also are shackled to our families, like handcuffs. And so even though these stories are involve very different characters, sometimes characters living and traveling around the world, all of them are kind of misplaced or displaced in different ways. I like that a lot. And um, I think everybody has a family or a relationship with a family. Maybe it's close and maybe it's not. Um, what kind of stories and what kind of relationships do the people in the book have? Oh, that's a great question. The kinds of relationships that they have are often accidental. 
These are people who don't make long-term plans, so they're truly characters of short stories because typically characters in novels are people capable of making long-term plans. I wouldn't describe these people exactly as bumblers, but I would say that they, in some ways, are all of them a little short-sighted and missing out on some important uh, aspects of their lives. One of them is a traveler in Thailand, and he has a, a birthmark on his, on his face. And he's in a place where people literally turn around and walk backwards and stare down the, stare down the street behind them at Westerners. So he's in a place where he's going to feel even more self-conscious about him, his appearance. And many of the characters are like that. They're, they're in the wrong place. They're misreading the cues. And they're looking for connections with people. They're looking for something. And so they have these accidental encounters with people in foreign places often. And that's, uh, that's a lot of what the stories are about. Why short stories and not novels? I write novels too, and I have another novel called Montpelier Tomorrow. That novel is based on somebody who has very big long-term plans. But I love short stories. I love the short story because it's a mini novel. The kind of short stories I write are about 7,500 words. You can finish them in one sitting, but the stories involve emotional depth. They're not not just what happens on the surface of life, they're what happens deep inside the person. I've, I've actually been told by authors that writing a short story is harder than writing a novel because you have to pack so much into less space that you have to be far more discriminating and uh, it has to be far more powerful than if you have a full novel to spin out. Do you feel like that? I think novels are kind of big and baggy things. There's room for an author to make mistakes. Not so much to let the plot sag, but to have passages that are kind of long and introspective. In short stories, it's a better strategy to figure out a turning point in the person's life. So you're capturing a person at a turning point, and that person then makes a choice. And the, whatever choice they make at the end of the end of the story, the climax of the story, affects the rest of their life. And you can see that person making about a five percent course correction, not a 180, but a five percent. And you can imagine that from then on, the course of their lives will be altered because of that one incident, that one moment in the in their life. You make, it sound so, you make it sound so easy to structure a, a short story. It sounds like a great formula. I like that a lot. And tell us about how do you become adept at that 5%, at identifying that 5%? Because it does sound like a formula. Look, we, we all look for formulas, not to say that that is the answer. But I think that that is a really good way to describe how to hone in on a short story character. How did you develop that? idea to develop your stories? Oh, from I developed that idea from about 50 years of writing. <laughs> 50 years of writing. But yeah. You, because the way, you, the way you just said it, it's, it's so clear, so easy to understand. Not all of us know how we do what we do, but you do. Yeah. I, I know that sounds kind of like a poem. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah. But, but I like that you, you were so able to do that. And 
And and I guess I'm asking you because some of our listeners might be readers. Um, sorry, writers. Yeah. And they struggle with this so much that I was hoping you might pull back the Wizard of Oz curtain just a little and give us a little snippet of how do you come to that because it's so smart um, and maybe they can come up with if not that something similar to that in order to finish their storyline what do you think well I think it helps if you're writing short stories to think about the particular moment in a person's life that's going to have meaning for the rest of their lives and that's probably the most important thing and then just to think about what it would take, what kind of pressure you would have to put that person under in order for change to occur. And so I always look for secondary characters who will come into the story and kind of shoulder bump the main character off their path. And I'll give you an example from one of the stories, Finding Peter. It's a woman named Anna Ringard who's in Denver looking for her runaway adopted son. And she's an artist, he's artistic, and she wants to believe that nurture has been the most important thing in his life. He's on a quest to find his identity, and he knows he came from a, an orphanage in Romania or the Czech Republic, somewhere over there. So he's kind of on a little vision quest of his own. And instead of finding him, she meets a Dutch woman who promises that she has seen Anna's son. And in fact, the woman is lying. So she bumps the woman off her path. She bumps Anna off her path. But what happens in the course of that short story profoundly changes Anna's desire to continue searching for her son. Here's what I want to know. Do you sit and conceive of the architecture, have all the scaffolding of the story done, and then write? Or do you sit down and write and you just start having these evocative phrases and ideas and follow them until you begin to understand where the story is going yourself? I don't have a, an architecture in place. <laughs> Come on, yes you do. Of course you do. Know. <laughs> my my stories are as messy as they get, and I write from fragments. Yeah, uh, but I write a lot. I like write from detail. So, for instance, that story I was just talking about, set in Prague, originated when a young woman came up and accosted me at the train station and said, "Could I, do you have any spare change? And if no spare change, do you have any calling cards, phone cards that she could use to call someone? And then I took a streetcar ride on the outskirts of Prague and I saw these semi-abandoned Soviet-era apartment buildings in which squatters were living. And I thought, oh, she's a drug user. And she could be living there. So as far as architecture, it's often something from my writing journals, and so I immediately went home and I wrote that down and I said, there's maybe a story here. Uh, and I, I put down all the details of what the apartment building looked like, which streetcar I rode, what the girl looked like, and that's how my stories begin. They often begin with story starters like the the stories the, the yeast starter in sourdough bread uh-huh. I, I like that mm-hmm. so tell us about those uh, writing journals just a little can you share a bit about how 
how do you manage journals? Because I've tried. I don't know about you, Diane. Have you tried having writing journals? Yeah. I have not been very organized about it, but I will sometimes scribble down snippets, and then the problem is going back and remembering a lot about what that meant to me at the time. Yeah, so snippets, that's exactly what I'm using, is snippets. And it doesn't even matter if I remember what happened at the time. I come at that snippet from where I am right now and whatever is emotionally working through me in, in my life. And often I combine snippets from two different situations into a single story. I just use those details to to try to get some energy going. I like, I like that. And so you have, and do you have moleskin? Are you particular about your journals? Oh, moleskin, moleskin. I love moleskin journals. Yes, I have two kinds of moleskin journals that I use. One um, are the little three by five moleskin journals, and I always have one with me. Don't have one now because we're sitting here talking. And then I have a larger one if I want to write some dialogue or I'm sitting in a coffee shop eavesdropping on people. I just take that out and I just start writing, just start recording the conversation. I try to write 20 things a day in my journal. So every day I go out to some public place, a bus, a train station, and note what is around me, the people, their appearance, fragments of conversation. So that's how I use journals. And it's a constantly, it's very generative for me as a writer because I'm not always wandering around in the rooms of my own mind. I'm out there in the world observing the varieties of people who live there. And that's what I think is unique about my short stories. People have told me it's like watching people in an airport. Well, do you ever um, move along and get to a point where you're stuck and you're and you're not you have no idea how this is going to go? Do you? That's the place I like to be. I like to <laughs> not know how this place is going to go. What what's going to happen next? And you were talking about architecture before, so I think this process allows me to write in a very free way when I'm beginning, and then to look at it again and think, well, should I rearrange these pieces? I've got a lot of snippets. Do I need some connective tissue here? And at the end, to decide whether I've really made that five degree turn for the character, and whether I've put that character under enough pressure so they're capable of seeing the world in a different way. You make writing sound like fun. And I second that. Yeah, a lot of people will say, I mean, you've heard this many times, right? The Ernest Hemingway quote where you just sit down at a typewriter and open a vein or other quotes about how it's torture to write. But you make it sound like it's just great fun. Like, I can't wait to get on this ride. <laughs> and you're giving us, I think, some really good, simple, you know, uh, things to try. Um, yeah. I love the idea of getting out and just, you know, you read it in writing books, but do you do it? Do you decide you're going to do, like you said, 20 things that you try to write down, 20 ideas a day, or 
like, you know, write certain pages a day or certain chapters a day. It's so helpful to have that as a guide. I like yeah. that a lot. I, so let's, I, go ahead. Well, I, I, I just, I can't believe it has always been this free-flowing and easy. I have to wonder when there was ever a struggle for you. Well, I don't think she's saying it's easy. I think she has a system in place, right? You know, it's not that easy. Well, my, my system is just to have a writing habit, a writing practice. And the writing practice is the thing that sustains you when you absolutely do not feel like writing. Where you rather would go fold your laundry or, you know, run the robot vacuum cleaner and clean your house. Or in my case... Uh, I have to get one of those. I don't have a robot <laughs> A robot vacuum cleaner saves me two hours a week of housework. It's My son gave me one, and it was just a godsend. Great. <laughs> but it's the writing practice, and subconsciously, in the off hours, I'm solving story problems. And in the in the time that I'm out there in the world writing, looking for these little things to write down, I'm training myself to observe very closely what people look like, what their mannerisms are, what their speech patterns are. Public transit, I live in Phoenix, Phoenix part of the year, Public transit that is just the most fabulous place. I've gotten character descriptions off of public transit, so that's that's how I do it. Yeah, because the idea there, I imagine, is that they are sitting still and they're in a position where they're not moving away, so that you can observe in a lot of detail. Yes. Wait, tell us about the book. What kind of response have you gotten? Is it what you expected? Well, I don't know that any author ever knows what to expect, but I think all of my reviews on Amazon have been five-star reviews. I've had people who've just loved this book. It's been a finalist in forward reviews, indie fab contest, won a silver medal for short stories um, in readers' favorites, and I really have a great Kirkus review so but you know what's more important to me is what do readers think and readers have really loved this even people who don't typically read literary fiction and I, I write literary fiction that doesn't mean highfalutin it just means character driven uh, there are no zombies in my stories <laughs> do you remember the first time a reader either reached out to you or gave you a review do you remember that not the first time, but I, I remember some really memorable ones. I got a review from uh, for my novel, not for this book, but for my novel from someone who said that that book had helped them finally forgive themselves because they had not been a perfect caregiver for their parent. That novel was about a caregiver who's trying to take care of a dying man, her son-in-law. And that was very, very meaningful to me. I um, I met one of my big fans, you could say. I was sort of like the the visiting American, and I was in Venice. And one of the people who loves my writing lives in Italy, and she and her husband and son took me all around. And she's just a wonderful, wonderful person, and I, I feel very close to her. I blog regularly, for, uh, I have a blog, maryleemcdonaldauthor.com, and on that I try to help readers and writers connect. I think that's that blog has been very, very helpful for many authors, but also for many readers.
That's amazing. Um, had you ever considered, other than the indie path, had you ever thought maybe I want to go through traditional publishing channels? Or is there something about this road you've taken that was a deliberate choice that you knew from the beginning you wanted? No, I I tried to find an agent for many years, and uh, having won literary contests, I thought that would give me some kind of entree to getting an agent. And instead, agents told me, you're too old, we don't want to take somebody your age to my face. And at that time, I was a youthful 60. I'm 73 now, so... You, can, no, you can't see my face or Diane's, but we're stunned right now. Yeah, so finally I said, you know what, I have two books that are ready to go, one Montpelier Tomorrow's my novel, and then this, Bonds of Love and Blood, I'm going to find a publisher, and so within six months, that was a New Year's resolution, so I think there is something about putting your mind on a a goal and saying, I'm going to make this happen no matter what, so within six months, I had three publishing offers. They were all from indie presses. I'm not a self-published author, although now I'm thinking, well, why am I not a self-published author? Maybe I'm just going to do this. Uh, With my next book, I I think I am going to do it because I, I have the skills in marketing and social media that I didn't have three years ago. And now I'm confident that I could do this, not just write the books. Oh, yeah. But... Get sure. them out. Absolutely. You and I can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure. And by, and by doing it, you would realize greater gains in certain ways. Maybe you could just unpack that for the people who are listening. Yeah. So a lot of people still have the impression that the only way to get published is to find an agent. And that's not the only way. You can do assisted publishing, which means you can find a publishing house that can help you format the book and get it out there into the world, or you can self-publish. And self-publishing has never been easier. The main challenge that's ahead, if you go that route, is that you'll have to promote your book. You'll have to get over your distaste for the word marketing and get out there and let the world know your book exists. But that's true for anyone being published out of New York these days unless they have a gigantic book advance. So, in my opinion, you might as well do it yourself. Was it a lot of work for you to learn how to promote? Did you sort of tackle that with the deliberate and persistent effort to teach yourself, or were you kind of spun around a little bit trying to get through that world? (laughs) Oh, was I spun around? Yes. Spin me around and I'll point me to the donkey and I can maybe st- maybe hit the wall with my thumbtack. Um, so I was a carpenter for many years and this carpentry career resulted from my having been widowed with five children. I was pregnant with my fifth child at the time. Yeah, well, this was when I was 25, so it was many, many years ago. And the the skill that I developed then was becoming an autodidact, meaning I can educate myself. Just give me a task, tell me this is, this, is, this is the world I want to build, 
and I'll figure out what I have to do to make that make me be a success in that world. So for many years I was a carpenter and and did that, raised my kids, put them through college doing that. And then at 50, I did start writing again. I have a master's in creative writing that I'd gotten when I was right after my husband's death. But I hadn't had leisure time, as you may well imagine, with five kids and a full-time job. So then when I did get back to writing, it was, it was using some of the same skills, same craft skills, same learning skills. And marketing was daunting to me. I had no social media presence. And I had to learn all that. So you ha- you have shared with us, uh, I think, some really powerful ideas for how to approach writing. Um, and what I'd like to give you one more opportunity to. We like to ask our, our guests to pretend they're in a room with first time to be well soon to be authors, writing in the same genre that you have written in, and for you to express your words of wisdom. What would you like to give them as they go ahead and move forward with this type of a project? Well, the type of writing I do is literary fiction. And I think literary fiction in particular means that you're writing because you truly love writing. You don't have a dream of making big bucks at it, necessarily. That's not the motivating factor. So nor do I even ever think that this is going to be turned into a movie. So I'm not seeing dollar signs and movie rights, although that... Although the cover, I have to say, I said to you, interestingly enough, that it makes me think of a film, the film poster, so beautiful. I will post it in the show notes, but it is a beautiful cover that makes me think of film, but go ahead. So anyway, I guess I would say that for writers to really succeed, it's important to put in the time to learn how to write and to write the best book you can write. I just do it for the pure love of writing and for the pure love of reading. I mean, I love writing and reading both, and I'm passionate about that. The marketing piece I'm less passionate about, but I want people to know my books exist, and so I do that, and I've had to learn that. Well, thank you for that. So the final uh, question for you is, where can readers find you? We'll add all of the URLs in our show notes, but you can tell us where they can find you, mega social media master that you are now, three years later. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Mary Lee MacD, M-A-C-D, and I'm on Facebook at Mary Lee MacD, and I blog about the craft of writing and about marketing ideas at MaryLeeMcDonaldAuthor.com. Spell Mary Lee for us. It's M-A-R-Y-L-E-E, and MacDonald is M-A-C, the Scottish way. MacDonald, not like the hamburgers. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you enjoy the rest of the pecan, and that's all for now. This is Mary Lee McDonald, and I'm reading from my short story collection, Bonds of Love and Blood. The story I'm going to read is Finding Peter. In previous summers, the break from teaching had never seemed long enough, but this summer felt like it would never end. 
her blouse still damp, a bra chafing her skin, Anna Ringard splashed through puddles on Prague's Charles Bridge, where a dozen sooty saints scowl down from the balustrades. Cowering and feeling like a mom who'd let go of a toddler's hand, she offered her missing persons flyer to check street artists in dreadlocks and olive drab. Seeing her, they put up their hands, shook their heads, and responded with wan, dismissive smiles. Okay, so they were sick of her coming around. Her picture of Peter looked a little menacing, his eyes glowering out from under his mop of hair. He hadn't liked being photographed. No biggie. Art was more truthful. It spoke from the soul. Her soul, at least. She had drawn him as she remembered him, a troubled young man. Across the bridge in Lower Town, she caught a tram. Every day after lunch, she went to the station to wait for the Talots, the international train. Unless her son was hitching, he'd have to be traveling by train. Sometimes he did hitch, though. According to Peter's friends, the day after graduation, he had left Boulder, hitched to Denver, and flown to Amsterdam. He'd sent her an email. Sorry to cut out without telling you. Don't worry, Mom, I'm not hitting the red light district. Ha ha, sketching tourists in squares, looking for others of Eastern European descent. Same physiognomy. Lots of people in Holland look like you. Didn't realize how many blondes were in the world until I landed here. Planned to head south, then east, finding my dark-haired clan. Peter. For a while, she'd tracked him by his ATM withdrawals. Then those had stopped, and she began to panic. A postcard from Florence had reassured her that he was still in the land of the living, though not anywhere he could be contacted. Museums closed, frescoes behind scaffold, Italians, fun, bella, bella, Italia. But so far, Amsterdam and Prague are where the action is. Peter. Standing on the platform, she looked at the big round clock, only minutes until Latalis arrived. If Peter's money ran out, he'd come back here. Prague was the beanbag chair where all young cash-strapped travelers eventually landed. She could picture him, an easel bungee-corded to his backpack, stepping down and looking around. The platform wasn't crowded today. Five American college girls, assorted Germans with big suitcases, and two little girls traveling with their parents. It would be easy to spot him. A whistle blew. The train, chuffing and hissing, bucked to a stop. From behind the snack bar, a young woman, early 20s, stepped out. A nest of hair was loosely pinned to her head, and she wore a diaphanous blouse and a long brown skirt with three tiers of ruffles. Are you English speaking, she said. Yes, Anna said, standing on tiptoes. The tall girl blocked her view. Excuse me, I'm looking for someone. The girl moved aside. Disembarking passengers, none with Peter's slouch, spill down the steps of the train. If you're leaving, you might have some spare change, the girl said. Or perhaps a phone card? What, Anna said. The girl repeated her request. I'm not leaving, Anna said. I'm sorry to trouble you, the girl said. Oh, you're Dutch, Anna said, catching the accent. One of those nice Dutch girls with the wide lips and high cheeks like the ones in Amsterdam. Anna had spent 10 days there and not once visited the Rijksmuseum. She took out a flyer. I'm looking for my son. I wonder if you've seen him. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. 
If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.